This is episode 150 of The Stem Cell Podcast, Brain Organoids in Space, with Dr. Alison Mwatri. Hey everyone, this is Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. We hope that you enjoyed last week's mini-episode at the ISSCR, where we talked to some research trainees about the most exciting research that they saw at the 2019 annual meeting and spoke to some senior researchers about their science, including the one and only Sir John Gurdon, Nobel laureate. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, go back and check it out, please, because we're going to be bringing you another episode, a second in the three-part series next week. But you got to listen to the first one first, all right? So don't miss out. Today... We have Dr. Alison Mwatri from the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine on the podcast to talk about his research on modeling neurological diseases using human iPSCs and sending his experiments off-world. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, if you use organoids, and you might, seems like everybody and their mom is starting to use them these days. Have a look at the STEMDIF Cerebral Organoid Differentiation Kit by Stem Cell Technologies to take your own mini-brains to the next research frontier. This 3D culture kit reliably mimics early brain development so you can focus on your next questions instead of on troubleshooting. The possibilities are endless, and the future begins now. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash cerebral organoids. Yeah, everybody and their mom... Working on the organoids. Mama, what are you getting yeah. out of them organoids? Mm. Probably not a lot, but uh, we can talk <laughs> about that to. this weekend. Uh, I'm going to start, Arun, with a story that is... Uh, I can't even pretend that it's a stem cell story, but it's very relevant to this interview we're about to do. And I think it's very relevant to everything that goes on in everybody's lives these days. I'm talking about Zika. Maybe not these days. People have stopped sweating Zika I don't really know why it was, you know, hysteria a couple summers ago as recently. But now no one talks about it. I don't know. Let's see. We could talk to Dr. Mwatri about that. But, you know, a part of it is that uh, due to the, the high rates of subclinical infections, and there's a lot of overlapping symptoms of Zika with dengue or chikungunya, Zika virus, it's not always, you know, we don't always know that it's Zika. And in fact, Zika was circulating for more than a year and a half before it was first detected in Brazil. By the time it was first discovered, that was May in 2015, it had already spread from Brazil to more than 40 countries, okay? And then by mid-2017, virus activity throughout the Americas is waning and the uh, Pan-American Health Organization, PAHO, they declared or predicted, at least, an end of the epidemic, okay? But recently, there have been new Zika outbreaks that have been described not only in South America, Central America, in the Americas, but throughout the world, in places like Angola, India, Cabo Verde, Vietnam, Thailand, and of course, some of these found their roots in the epidemic that started in the Americas, okay? And this obviously suggests that there's still some action in the Americas from Zika if it's, you know, these same strains or you're finding them all over the world. So it suggests that the Zika virus uh, transmission could still be ongoing. 
in the Americas, despite the fact that we're predicting uh, uh, end of the epidemic. And case reporting has come very close to zero. All right. So here's the thing. Again, primarily you got Zika, right? You don't always know because it could be chikungunya. It could be, you know, the other dengue. It could be these other viruses and its symptomology. But the other thing we don't talk about very often is the political element of it, the socioeconomic element of it, is that the primarily transmitted in urban settings, right? That's where you got, you know, a lot of uh, transmission because it disproportionately impacts people with limited resources. Um, and people who have less access to adequate health care. So you get a lot of more of those cases that go undetected or unreported. Um, and these are so-called hidden outbreaks. Okay, so that brings us to this story here. This is a story from Christian Anderson at uh, Scripps Research Institute. And the idea here is exploiting this notion of travel surveillance. Okay, travel surveillance it's been an effective method for detecting pathogens, not just Zika, in resource-limited areas. And the idea there is you diagnose patients that acquire effect infections while traveling. Okay, so they're, they're diagnosed in their home country following travel. So you, you know, can kind of infer that the, the roots of the infection were in the, the destination there, not the country of origin or the country of diagnosis. And then you combine that with this idea of genomic epidemiology, and that's, of course, exploiting the fact that there's such a high role, a high rate of viral mutation that you can kind of define which viruses come from where. Um, so using this framework that integrated local case reporting, travel surveillance, and genomic epidemiology, Christian Anderson and the group there, uh, they... Uh, underwent a clinical sequencing of uh, Zika virus from infected travelers uh, in all kinds of in, in infected travelers from a lot of the, in the within this uh, travel surveillance paradigm and found that there was a large, and this was the trip for me, uh, they found that there was a, a large Zika outbreak in Cuba that was never reported to the PAHO. Um, it peaked in 2017. 2017, by the way, is when PAHO was predicting the waning. And this was the peak of this actual cryptic epidemic. Um, so there was this real thing uh, that was totally unrecognized. And what's notable also is that the, the outbreak in Cuba, it was, it was delayed by a full year. Um, and part of the reasoning for that is that perhaps it was delayed because there was a countrywide, you know, they did this blanket campaign to totally destroy any trace of mosquitoes to try and control the vector there. Um, and that probably delayed it, but ultimately there was introduction of the V or reintroduction of the Zika virus from other Caribbean islands that perhaps didn't have the same kind of vector control campaign and that fueled this cryptic outbreak, okay? So I think more than anything, for me, the takeaway here is wear your, you know, deep woods off for me because I don't want to get Zika, even though I'm not trying to have babies right now. But uh, other than that, I think it's the idea of this, is the notion of using this travel surveillance and the genomic epidemiology, which are things that are accessible, at least in, you know, the developed world, in order to get a handle on emerging infections um, and reconstructing the, the transmission dynamics 
of these outbreaks that occur in in lesser served areas where the local reporting is either absent or insufficient. So it's an opportunity to get a handle on uh, outbreaks that occur in that context and maybe get a, get a beat on them and get a lead on them and put them to bed, Arun. So my friend, I think that, you know, I don't know how you feel about Zika. I'm still a little bit afraid. So it's good to see that somebody's still got their eye on it. Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, definitely something that's still pretty relevant these days. And, you know, um, I wonder if this same idea could be used for Ebola, for example, right? Like Ebola is another virus that has a lot of, you know, as a global impact, there's a huge outbreak that happened, you know, three or four years ago, right? And it makes me wonder if we're missing some hidden Ebola outbreaks as well. Although I guess Ebola is a little bit more in your face than Zika <laughs> is, right? Yeah. You're, you're going to find out pretty quickly if you have Ebola or not. So Yeah, it's, it's in your face. But there is the, also the same notion like you're alluding to that like you have these outbreaks and then they're dealt with and suppressed. And then everyone's like, OK, we're through it. But then there's another outbreak, right? So we kind of got to track the, the, the kind of, you know, vertically track where are these things coming from where are the reservoirs and i think maybe this is one one handle toward that end so let's see i don't know i'd love to talk to dr Motri what he thinks about this idea and just zika in general i wonder if he's moved on from zika but i have a feeling not so let's talk to him about it when when he gets on yeah i mean the world definitely hasn't moved on it's still prevalent it's still there so you know it's it's not going anywhere so Shifting gears a little bit, we're going to focus on the ketogenic diet, which is actually something that these days a lot of people are starting to, to give it a shot. You know, this idea where you have a high fat diet, a low protein, low carb diet, and, you know, some people swear by it. Some people believe that it really helps you in terms of your intestinal issues and your general well-being and so on you know i haven't tried it maybe you have dalon i don't know but i'm in very good shape arun i don't need to do anything about my diet i don't know about you fair enough fair enough man man i see you on my skype screen you know you're a beautiful <laughs> looking man i must say but anyways anyways moving on from there the ketone body signaling mediates intestinal stem cell homeostasis and adaption to diet. That's the name of the paper. It's a paper that recently came out in Cell. And it's from the group of Omer Yilmaz at MIT. And it's, uh, it's looking at the role of ketone bodies in intestinal stem cell renewal. And so a lot of us have heard about these LGR5 intestinal stem cells, which reside in this crypt, this, you know, intestinal stem cell niche um, in your gut, right? And it's thought that the proliferation, the function, the control of these stem cells is dependent on signaling pathways like Wnt, Notch, BMP, these pathways that are all super important when it comes to stem cell, stem cell specification, stem cell function. And there's also extrinsic cues, right, from the environment that are thought to dynamically remodel the intestinal composition through the function of these intestinal stem cells. And so we've made some progress in deciphering how different transcription factors and interactions with the stem cell niche can exert control on LGR5 positive stem cell and identity. But we don't have as much information on the role of metabolites and the metabolism in this process, right? So in addition to your you know, ketogenic diets, we've got 
fasting-based approaches like intermittent fasting, which is like you eat for eight hours and you fast for 16 hours. And the thought is that your body can break down some of the, the residual fats and have a pretty similar metabolic state to what you might have in the ketogenic diet, for example. And there are some studies that show low-calorie metabolic states can control stem cell number and function in calorically restricted dietary regimens, just like the, the intermittent fasting regimen. And it's thought that you might uh, activate fatty acid oxidation metabolism to influence intestinal stem cell function and maybe even enhance stem cell uh, enhanced stemness in a way. But again, I, like I mentioned, not too much is known about how the metabolites, the specific metabolites like these ketone bodies actually function in this process. So here, the authors interrogated how levels of the ketone body beta-hydroxybutyrate or beta-OHB in these LGR5 intestinal stem cells actually govern the diet responsive metabolite signaling axis that modulates the notch signaling program. And of course, like I mentioned, notch signaling is super important in maintaining the intestinal stem cell population as it is. So they're making that connection here between the ketogenic diet, between these ketone bodies and the activation of notch signaling. So you're not really focusing on a transcriptional activation per se, you know, upstream using like growth factors or whatever, but really a metabolite, a small molecule, a ketone body that can have this really profound effect on activating uh, intestinal stem cell function. So how do they figure this out? So the first off, they use some RNA-seq data from populations of these LGR5 positive intestinal stem cells. And they found that these stem cells highly express the HMGCS2 gene, which encodes for a rate-limiting step in the ketogenic process. It's a metabolic enzyme with a pretty strong expression, specifically in these LGR5-positive cells. And they also confirm some of this data using single-cell expression analysis as well. So they confirmed that this HMGCS2 gene has an essential role in maintaining the intestinal stem cell numbers and also maintaining the differentiation stemness balance of the whole intestinal crypt. And the, the gene is important for repairing these intestinal stem cells uh, and also you know, IC-mediated repair in vivo after injury. So the next thing they did was kind of take a deep dive into it, and I kind of gave away the answer to see what is this gene actually doing in regulating this process. And so they found that when they subjected mice to a high-fat diet, a ketogenic diet, for example, there's a breakdown of fats into these ketone bodies. And these ketone bodies are actually the ones that are responsible for activating the notch signaling pathway. So... Not only that, but when you flip the switch and you do the opposite thing and you give these mice a high-carb diet, this ability to activate the intestinal stem cell population is actually reduced. And so you have kind of the opposite effect. And the last thing they actually wanted to consider, and I'm not sure if they actually dove into this too deep, is, yeah, so we're saying that ketone body activating, you know, the intestinal stem cells may be good for, uh, you know, for the gut and for the intestine, but is too much of a good thing a bad thing? What happens if you overactivate these stem cell populations? Is that something that might give rise to like a cancer phenotype? I don't know. So I think that's something that they they want to investigate. But in general, you know, it's it's uh, it's saying that hey, maybe these keto ketone diets, these ketogenic diets are are good. You know, maybe there's something to it. Maybe there's 
something to renewing your adult stem cell populations in your gut, and maybe it's something we should look into. This is such a trip, man, because you know who's been telling me about this stupid keto diet forever is my mother-in-law. And I, the reason why I'm upset is because I always want to be, I want to be able to be like, oh, man, you and your pseudoscience or blah, blah, blah. But time and again, her intuition on all these diet crazes has a basis in reality. And this is another case, although I will ask, just because I, I, I don't know, what is, what is the relevance? Like, having my IS, my intestinal stem cells, like, be cycling more or less, how does that relate to <laughs> how I look in a bathing suit? I mean, how, like, my, <laughs> my, my whatever. Like, what does that mean? Do you know? What does that mean for, like, my gut health, as my mother-in-law loves to call it? I don't know, man. I think there's this whole idea of the, you know, gut microbiome is super important for for all sorts of things these days, right? So maybe this has a role in that as well, right? So your gut is responsible for breaking down all the nutrients you absorb, you know, in those crazy fried chicken binges that you have, Daylon, you know what I mean? So so maybe maybe there's something to it. Maybe just being able to renew your intestinal stem cells is is a protective mechanism. It's 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 you know it's a safeguard against eating things that you're not supposed to eat or or whatnot. So maybe maybe it's a protective mechanism. There you go, partner. That's a, that's an answer that makes sense. And you've really got my number with my fried chicken binges. I'm gonna have to watch that unless get my hands on some of them ketones, which. I'm in the market for some ketones if anybody's selling. But first, let me get into the metastatic niche. Because, you know, who doesn't want to get into the metastatic niche? This is a cancer story. Cancer, which we are in the process of curing. I like to tell people that they say, well, we haven't cured cancer. I say, really? Look around. Um, but still, cancer's tough. And, of course, we understand now more than ever that the cancer, it's not just the cancer. The cancer cell behavior, it's very strongly influenced by the, the niche, the surrounding cells and the tumor microenvironment. Right? And when you talk about metastasis, which is the dirty word when you talk about cancer, early in metastatic growth, your cancer cells, they generate a metastatic niche in the tumor microenvironment. You know, they set themselves up so that they can prevail, ultimately, and we die. Um, but the analysis of the, the metastatic niche in terms of its cellular composition, it's tough, because how do you know what's what? How do you uh, differentiate and discriminate the... I mean, it's, you can discriminate the tumor from the niche because you do some intrinsic labeling of the tumor or whatever, but it's still, even in, you know, with, in the scientific context, using all the tools we have, it's really tough at the current state of the art to discriminate the niche cells with just the other surrounding bulk tissue. You know, when you consider that there's some just bystander tissue and then there's the active players that are setting up that metastatic niche and the bad actors. So this is a study by Ju Hyun Lee and Ilaria Malanchi who were at uh, University of Cambridge and the Frick Institute, both of those in London, Brexiting as we speak, if they can pull themselves together. Uh, let's see if they hang around. Listen, you should come to us. This is a Nature article. These guys are big, big deal researchers here, so we could use them. Leave the, come on, post-Brexit, we could use you over here. Certainly, we got plenty of cancer. Anyway, let me get back to it. This is a study from them. Uh, 
where they introduced, I think, this really important technical strategy, a technical approach, technological approach, where they were able to specifically label the uh, neighboring cells, the, the actual the metastatic niche players within the tumor microenvironment. So I'll tell you quickly how they did it, because I think it's, you know, it's a simple idea, but it just takes a little bit of technical uh, you know, acumen and, and dedication. Uh, very simply, they created a system where they used two fluorescent proteins. They're generic uh, GFP, let's call it, and then they have an, an alternate fluorescent protein, the red one, M-cherry. But this M-cherry is engineered to contain a modified lipid-permeable transactivator of transcription peptide. Okay, we're calling it SLP M cherry. That's what they're calling it. And the bottom line with this reagent is that the cell makes it, it secretes it, and then because it has this lipid permeable transactivator transcription peptide, it can then re-enter the cell. All right, simple. The cell spits it out, it can go back in the cell. But it doesn't just go back into the cell of origin, but it goes into any cell, any bystander cell. So it's taken up by unlabeled cells also in the periphery. So if you put this GFP slash SLM cherry uh, tumor cell into any environment, you'll get the tumor cells, which will be green and red, and then you'll get the peripheral cells that will be just red. The half-life for this M cherry signal in this SLP M cherry is 43 hours, um, localized in lysosomal-like structures within the cell. So it's useful. You can quantitatively and qualitatively distinguish known metastatic niche cells within the tissue. You can tell what's what. Um, and more importantly, you can focus on those bad actors in the periphery because that's what sets up the cancer to succeed. They prove the principle here using uh, metastatic cancer cells that then they introduce into the lung. And they showed um, that the lung parenchyma within the lung, so these are non-tumor cells, they ultimately exhibit stem cell. They take up the label. That's how they identify them first. And then when they look at them, they show that those cells exhibit stem cell-like features. They express lung progenitor markers, multilineage differentiation potential they have, and self-renewal activity. So this is attributes that aren't typical of the lung parenchyma. And pretty much identify or proves the principle of their approach, which is that they can distinguish. And here, I guess, the, the, the insight is that, yes, these cells can kind of de-differentiate into a kind of progenitor self-renewing state that then facilitates the growth of that tumor. Um, but I think, you know, although that may be light on the mechanistic insight of what's going on in those cells underlying the transformation, I think it's a nature paper because it introduces this tool that you can apply for a lot of things, just both within the field, you know, oncology, cancer, as well as outside of it. So... A big splash with a big reagent. I hope they got a patent or something out of that so that they can make some money when the Brexit goes down and their pockets are empty. Great story, partner. What do you think about it? I think it's great. Actually, the first thing I was thinking about when it came to the application of this technology was using it for developmental applications, right? Like, I'm a developmental biologist, so I want to study how different cell types actually interact during the developmental process of, say, like the heart, for example. Like in the heart, you have not only the development of the cardiomyocytes, the contracting cells of the heart, but also, you know, there's a huge influence of the adjacent cell types to the cardiomyocytes, right? There's like the support cells of the fibroblasts, endothelial cells, all that, right? So this is a technology that you can use to 
studied those, you know, interactions between those adjacent cells. And what is cancer? Cancer is a misregulated development in a lot of ways, right? So you might be able to to use it for that application as well. Yes, 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 Sarun. I was thinking the same thing. And more than that, even in development, you know, things are moving so fast and the moved cells are, are intercalating and extending and there's all this stuff going on. With a reagent like this, you can envision that you can kind of see the tracks of a cell at, during its migratory process. It's moving along the midline, let's say, during primordial germ cell migration to try and colonize the gonad, leaving little traces, leaving little M cherry footprints in its wake. And you can chart the path of those PGCs. How awesome is that, you know? It's like taking a little treasure map into the develop, developing embryo. I can't, you know, you said that, and I just thought of a million things that we might use this tool for, so. Won't be long. It won't be me, probably, but we're going to be reading about it very soon. What's next, Arun? Next up, we got organ on e-chip. Not organ on h-chip, organ on e-chip. <laughs> Careful distinction. Three-dimensional self-rolled biosensor array for electrical interrogations of human electrogenic spheroids. Also kind of got a cardiac element to it. So it's a science advances research article, and it's a applied sciences and engineering intersected with stem cell biology. And it's coming with, uh, it's coming from the group of Zahi Cohen Carney at Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. So the general idea is, you know, everybody's talking about three-dimensional organoids. You know, our, our guest today is Dr. Allison Watry, and he's going to be talking about his work in studying brain development and neurodevelopment using three-dimensional brain organoids. But the hope is that we can really use some new technologies to better interrogate 3D development, 3D brain, or brain organoid or whatever organoid development in real time. And this is kind of what this particular paper was getting at. So we've been able to grow cells in 2D for forever, right? I mean, 2D cell culture has been around for decades. Everybody's been doing it. But the 2D cell culture environment and 3D tissue environments that you find in the native body are different. They're different quantitatively, for example, in the dimensions. Yeah, you have two dimensions versus three dimensions, but also qualitatively, right? You have a variety of different cellular behaviors that are different, proliferation, extracellular matrix interactions, migration. And one, one other important characteristic, electrophysiological properties, EFIS. This was kind of the focus of this particular paper. So cell electrophysiology is pretty prevalent, and it's it's a paradigm that's used to study cell-cell communication in a, a wide range of cells. We have my favorite cells, the cardiomyocytes, which are, of course, electrophysiologically active. We've got neurons. We've got a bunch of other cell types, which, you know, I don't think they're as exciting, but I guess, you know, some people out there might think they're kind of cool. But, you know, you have your electrophysiologically active cells. You have non-electrophysiologically active cells, like immune cells, hepatocytes. And, you know, everybody's kind of shifting their favorite cell type towards a 3D organoid-based approach. And if you're using electrophysiologically active cells, you have certain techniques that are really kind of your bread and butter that you're using for everyday use in your toolbox, right? You have patch clamp, you have voltage and calcium-sensitive dyes, you have multi-electrode arrays, all these different technologies, right? The problem, though, is when you try to apply some of these technologies to three-dimensional 
architectures, three-dimensional topologies, right? So that's that's something that hasn't really been well investigated in the spheroid-based tissue field, right? 3D organoid field. In particular, you know, you have your calcium-sensitive dyes, you have your ion-sensitive dyes, and they might actually be toxic to your cells. And we want to examine in a three-dimensional context how this might, you know, how this might happen. Patch clamp is pretty good. It's kind of the gold standard for looking at action potential for electrophysiologically active cells like cardiomyocytes, neurons, so on. But it's understandably, it's tricky and it's tough to do in a three-dimensional context. So recently, there's been some work in 3D bioelectrical interfaces. So for example, some folks developed a porous conductive polymer, which was able to act as a transistor channel and also as a scaffold in which you could grow 3D organoids. And what these folks at Carnegie Mellon were able to do was to develop an organ on an electronic chip or an organ on E chip as a 3D self-rolled biosensor array a 3D SRBA for direct electrophysiological measurement of cardiac spheroids, which enables the study of cell-cell communications in a 3D context, like in an organoid system. So what they did was uh, develop a metal polymer support system, which was basically used as a way to wrap around a functional organoid, a functional three-dimensional contracting cardiac organoid. And it's able to kind of self-assemble in a way too. So this 3D uh, self-rolling biosensor array was a tool that they could use to record electrophysiological signals of native 3D three-dimensional architecture. They were able to use it for uh, looking at action potentials. They would use it for a variety of different applications. They were able to fabricate some uh, MEAs on this platform, and it's flexible, so it can fold around your organoid of interest. So I think it's powerful. It's it's able to show that when you're studying, say, development in a dish using an organoid system, a three-dimensional organoid system, you can do it kind of non-invasively. You can just wrap this, uh, this material around the organoid, and over the course of the development of the organoid, the um, you can record action potential, you can record contractility, you can record a bunch of different electrophysiological parameters. And the other really important thing is that this material did not change the viability of the organoid, which is super important. You don't want to disturb the native architecture of the structure. So I think it's powerful. It's it's an intersection of material science with 3D organoids in stem cell biology, and I think it's it's something that you know a lot of people are are interested in. You know, there's a couple of other papers that I saw that were along these same lines, not in the cardiac in the cardiac space, but in the neurospace. So any time you can examine in real time electrophysiological properties of these functionally active cells, I think it's a really, really good thing. Yeah, this is amazing. It's like, uh, like you said, you're integrating the cell biology and this whole technological element. Um, what's coolest to me is you look at the pictures and the thing looks like a cannoli and it's like <laughs> micro and it makes me hungry. But I, I wonder about also like when you're doing stuff on the micro level like this, for one purpose, I wonder if you can also apply that to a lot of other like micro, you know, measurements like this might also be useful just, you know, in, in a more practical and adult cells, maybe in some part of the body where you need to, you know, a wearable monitor or something. I know they're developing a tech already for that type of stuff, but you can see how, you know, these, these, these innovations 
don't just have an application in academic science, that you might actually be able to apply them for diagnostics for clinical purposes in the near term. For sure. I think the tricky thing with using this technology for organoids is, you know, organoids are a little heterogeneous when it comes to the functional properties of the cells in the organoid. So, for example, the cells smack dab in the very, very middle of the organoid, maybe functioning functioning a little bit differently than those uh, at the, the exterior. So mm. if you're using this technology, you're only kind of directly measuring the electrophysiological properties of the cells at the exterior. But I guess the hope is, you know, if you're looking at electrophysiologically active cells, then they're kind of linking up, they're syncing mm -hmm. their action potentials, propagating from the inside of the organoid to the outside. So maybe it still works. Yeah, I mean, it's limitations, for sure limitations, but I won't be surprised if it's not long before they're going into the two, three, four deep tissue layer and getting some kind of measurements. We'll see. I'm not surprised at anything anymore, Arun. I've totally lost the capacity to be surprised, which is pretty sad for my kids. All right, we're going to get to the interview, but first, stem cell technologies would like to introduce their one-stop resource for researchers who are using or looking to use organoids in their experiments. Stem Cells Organoid Information Hub provides scientists with instructional videos, educational webinars, expert interviews, technical tips, and curated publications to help researchers set up and optimize organoids as a research model in their labs. Learn about organoid culture from the experts at Stem Cell. Visit www.stemcell.com slash discover dash organoids. And without further ado, we're going to talk about some organoids with our guest. All right. Next up on the Stem Cell podcast for this week, we have our interview segment with Dr. Alison Mwatri, who is a returning guest to the podcast. Dr. Mwatri is a professor in the Departments of Pediatrics and Cellular and Molecular Medicine at the UC San Diego School of Medicine. He is also co-director of the UCSD Stem Cell Program, and his research focuses on modeling neurological diseases using human iPSCs. His lab is currently studying the brain from an evolutionary and developmental perspective, differentiating stem cells into organoids. and and very excitingly, he is leading a project investigating the effect of microgravity on human brain organoids, and we can't wait to talk to him about that. Currently, his samples, I believe, have just returned from the space station, so we'll definitely get to that in a little bit. But first of all, welcome, Dr. Mwatri. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to return here. Yeah, and so why don't we give our listeners an overview of what your lab is currently working on in your own words? Yeah, so um, uh, as you mentioned, I mean, we take advantage of these two brain organoids uh, to really recreate uh, the human uh, brain, at least the early stages of the human brain with all the intrinsic limitations of the model. Uh, so we can get a little bit closer to the reality um, and, and perhaps apply that in different directions. So as you mentioned, my lab is looking at disease modeling and we focus on early neurodevelopmental disorders such as autism uh, or epilepsy. Uh, but we also have other interesting uh, aspects, for example, on the study of uh, brain evolution. Um, and we like to expose these brain organoids to different environments such as microgravity. So that's more or less uh, the three branches of the lab. 
Yeah, Dr. Mwatri, it's great to have you on um, because you really are all over the place in the best way, uh, making a high impact. Um, But, you know, long before we got to the organoids, I think you were an early adopter of the experimental utility and value of uh, IPS systems for disease modeling, you know, whether or not they're on Earth or in space. You know, using it to model neurodevelopmental disease, one of your first stories, big stories, was a cell article modeling Rett syndrome. That was almost a decade ago now, which is an amazing testament to the fact that you keep getting older, my man. What are the lessons we've learned since then? What, what, those were like the seminal disease and the DISH studies. What, what have we learned since then? And, and are there other kind of older studies like that now uh, that would benefit from another look from the kind of organoid perspective? Yeah, so that, that's a great point. Uh, when I look back to this uh, uh, 10-year landmark, my lab is, 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 is like in a 10-year milestone now. Hmm. It's almost unbelievable uh, to think about it. Uh, but yeah, that, that cell paper was um, one of uh, the early ones on really disease modeling, taking advantage of uh, Shinya Yamanaka's technology to reprogram cells and then, I mean, learn how to make uh, neurons and, and really go after the phenotypes, make sure that the phenotypes we have in a dish are, are real and not just um, uh, variability among the experimental, experimental techniques that we have. And uh, what is surprising to me that one of the most uh, dramatic phenotypes we have in that paper, which is a reduction of the number of glutamatergic synapses, now we are repeating those experiments with more sophisticated technology using organoids, for example, and we still see the same phenotypes. Mm. So I think that's, um, that, that's amazing that uh, the cells can actually uh, express this kind of a neuronal phenotype uh, in a dish. Um, and, and so it, I just see as a really powerful tool uh, that this can, can be done and can be useful to help millions of people with neurological conditions. Um, I guess uh, the field has uh, matured uh, over the years, and uh, definitely we are more cautious on uh, all kind of phenotypes that we see in a dish. Most of the phenotypes are really at the molecular level. And when we talk about brain organoids, my lab and other labs, uh, we mainly focus on uh, alterations that we can actually see. Uh, for example, our work with the Zika virus. When you expose these brain organoids to the virus, it kills the progenitor cells, it reduces the cortical plate. That explains microcephaly in the outbreak in Brazil. So because you can see it, um, it it's very easy to do. Uh, but there are different disorders or conditions where the brain remains intact. Um, you don't see malformation. There is no neurodegeneration. These are neurological conditions such as autism, epilepsy, or psychiatric conditions, schizophrenia, bipolar, depression. These are all network defects. And what my lab has been working on on the past years is just to create a brain organoid that can have this kind of sophisticated brain network. And I'm not only talking about networks between uh, two neurons and neurons talking to each other. No, I'm taking to a different level. And I think this is important because we are merging now two different fields, which is the stem cell biologists and the cognitive neurosciences. And when we say a neural network to these two fields, they, they see different things. I mean, we as a cellular biologists, we like to think about neurons making connections to each other. The cognitive neurosciences see in a different way, they see in a different scale. So they, they assume that the neurons are already talking to each other, but they are producing signals in other frequencies. This is what we call 
uh, oscillations. And, um, and, um, and so far, I mean, we, we, uh, we had no evidence that these brain organoids could actually create that. I think the assumption would be that uh, something artificial outside the body, outside the uterus, will never reach that kind of uh, activity. Um, but uh, we were surprised to see that you can actually get that from a brain organoid. So, Dr. Moutry, the, the field has definitely moved quite rapidly over the last 10 years or so, especially when it comes to everything related to organoid biology. It seems like everybody's starting to adopt organoids for their own cultures, moving from two-dimensional differentiations to three-dimensional differentiations. I'm a cardiac biologist, and right now I'm doing mostly two-dimensional IPS cardiomyocyte differentiation, but everybody wants to shift to 3D. You know, that's, that's, <laughs> that's definitely the way we're going, right? But so for the next five to 10 years, what would you say are the, the biggest unanswered questions? Where do you think the field is going? Is it really this immaturity issue that we have to address? Because that's something that's you know associated with all IPS derivatives, whether it's brain, whether it's heart, whether it's whatever, right? Mm -hmm. So where do you think the field is going for the next couple of years? Yeah, I, I, I think you're touching a very important question, which is, I mean, how mature can we get in vitro, right? And uh, so it's easy to transplant these cells back in the animal and see that they can mature over there. We, we did that. But I think the uh, most important thing is, can we do it uh, in vitro so we can use that for high throughput screening, uh, things that uh, we always wanted to do for disease modeling. And um, for the brain, and, and every tissue might have a different way to achieve maturity. For the brain, what we see is that uh, they form networks and these networks continues to mature um, uh, over uh, a year or so. Um, so we actually record weekly uh, electrical activity from these organoids. And what we see is that it reaches kind of a plateau between nine and 10 months of uh, age. And, um, and, and then, I mean, you can keep them alive for several years, um, but the activity just stay at the same thing. Uh, and the question is why? Is it because we are missing signals? Is it because they are not vascularized? We are not producing the nutrients that they require to the center of the organoids to continue to produce more cells? Or in the case of the brain, this is one of our hypotheses, we are missing inputs. And inputs are important for the brain to start processing information and, and outputting information as well. So um, these are the kind of uh, uh, things that I think we're going to see in the, the next five, 10 days, how to really uh, change the protocols or stimulate the organoids so they can uh, mature even further. And do you think, and you, know, you may have a biased answer to this, and I certainly do, do you think everybody should be shifting their culture to three-dimensional culture, or do you think there are still advantages to do, doing things in two dimensions? Uh -huh. I, I don't think it's um, it's like any other model, right? I mean, there is uh, no model that can totally replace the other one. So we still do like 2D cultures for certain things, uh, mostly imaging or or screening that requires like a, a 2D surface. It's it's much easier to do that. It's hard to do that in 3D. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I mean, when we are looking for uh, signals or neuronal maturation. Uh, just the fact that we're moving in 3D, uh, the level of activity that we are getting from neurons is uh, in the scale of hundreds of thousands times higher than the 2D. So if you're looking for activity, you have to go 3D. So, uh, you know, we're kind of dancing around and alluding to this uh, more recent story with the questions that you had. It's a big, 
big story, and we're just lucky enough to talk to you on the day that dropped Advanced Online. We're going to get to that. But first, I want to, you know, go back to uh, another one of your earlier stories that exploited the whole organoid model in, in one of the early, early stage uh, stories to do this. Um, but for infectious diseases, so Zika, and you alluded to this too, you know, we're approaching the end of the summer. And one thing that's been conspicuous from its absence is, you know, the Zika hysteria that we remember from summers ago. And in fact, we just covered on the Roundup today a story in Cell that talked about travel surveillance and how there was actually a hidden Zika right. uh, epidemic. So, you know, it turns out Zika didn't go away, but we just kind of stopped talking about it. And of course, Zika is important to you, not only because you worked on it, but you're born, trained in Brazil. I mean, this is this is part of your wheelhouse in many ways and uh, of course you use the the organoid model to define the cellular mechanisms of the neuropathology there in that nature story do you think the threat of zika remains and how are we using brain organoids to understand or treat zika and other transmissible or infectious diseases yeah I think that it, this is one of the rare examples where the technology was ready when the outbreak happened so we had these uh, brain organoids going on in the lab and uh, I was uh, very uh, fortunate to have a former postdoc working in Brazil uh, who was able to uh, team up with us and provide a little bit of samples of these uh, viruses uh, so we can do these experiments. Um, we initially did some mouse experiments, but mouse are very resistant. They have to use a high dose. And we don't really know, I mean, how um, uh, good of a, a model the mouse will be for Zika. But when we... Uh, we tested that in the human brain organoids, and the human brain organoids have a very slow developmental process, so we could actually capture exactly what the Zika was doing during this process. That's how we learn what are the target cells, um, what are the consequences for the cortical layering, and um, so that, that's because of the human model. Um, so, but uh, as you alluded, and I like that, uh, that, that paper suggesting that the, the Zika is still there, we are just not noticing or, or countries are not reporting that much. And I think this is true for any kind of um, emergent viruses. They, they can mutate it and they can become uh, uh, more aggressive over time or depending on a, a different selective pressure. So, um, in, in the case of Zika, I, I think not only we're able to show the causation, but we could use the brain organoid model to screen drugs that could uh, stop the viral replication. And uh, so that's how we found a drug called sofosbuvir that can block um, uh, uh, the virus in, in inside the neural cells or, or even in, in, in moms. I mean, we did these experiments in vivo as well, so you can block the vertical transmission. So if there is a new outbreak right now, we know what kind of drug to use, so at least we can, we can save the babies. And, um, but my point here is this was done in record time. We went from causation to find a drug that can possibly protect uh, the babies in two years. So this is, a, I, I don't remember seeing any other examples of, 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 of a pathogen that was uh, that fast. And I, I think, again, because of the technology was ready, it was in our hands when the outbreak um, uh, uh, happened in, in, in Brazil. So do you think that this is a new template for, I mean, it, it's funny because no one ever thinks about how it's kind of transformed the infectious disease landscape. But do you think about that, about applying it broadly as a kind of provisional, kind of a standby measure so that you can move these things 
from diagnostics to treatments in, in record time? Is that something you see happening in the future? Or you think Zika was maybe an exception to that? No, no, no. Uh, we, we have this idea. That, that's how we decided to do it uh, or to think about organoids as a probe for environment. Mm. And, and not only uh, viruses or, 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 or microbes, we can think about uh, pesticides, mm. toxins that's in the environment. So we can, we can use these um, uh, uh, organoids uh, just to probe if that environment is safe or not. And then we can learn what kind of um, consequences that environment causes for the developing brain, perhaps uh, protect the brain against it, or mitigate the problem if we are to go to that specific place. So we, the, the idea is to create what we call a brain-safe label. Mm. So you, if you have a new product on market, you test it on the organoids and you gain like a brain-safe label. So the product um, uh, has at least some testing in, in human early development. So you don't have to wait for a problem to appear to worry about that. Uh, ideally, you should we should test everything, everything that gets in, in, in close contact to a pregnant woman or a developing brain. Um, and, and this goes from paints in your house uh, to, uh, I don't know, things that they put in the environment. There are lots of chemicals, lots of toxins that uh, we are exposed every day. And we really don't know what's the consequence uh, for the brain. So I, I, I think um, using uh, organoids as a, as a sentinel uh, to probe the consequences of environmental cues, uh, it's a very attractive idea. Yeah, you got to talk to my wife. She's been lamenting. She looks closely at this, and she would agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and she told me about this fact that I wasn't aware of, that everything that is in common use with the FDA, you don't have to prove it's safe. You have to prove it's not safe to get it eliminated <laughs> from the register. So we're, we got all these compounds that we're taking in all the time, that we really don't have a safety profile for. So yeah, I mean, talk about a great marketing ploy too, the brain safe label. Wow, my man, you should get a marketing degree <laughs> alongside your PhD. Yeah, and the epidemiology uh, sometimes is just, uh, just takes time. I mean, we could be exposed to that. I mean, there's a new generation of babies being born in all, with all these new chemicals and we only know the consequences later on in life. Mm -hmm. And until we realize and change that, the damage is done. But so how about the scalability of using these organoids as a, kind of like a, a preclinical screening tool? Do you think they would be able to be scaled up to have enough organoids to actually use them in this way? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So we, um, in, in my lab, we already have like a couple of hundred thousands organoids that we're doing for the uh, different diseases and, and, and experiments that we want. Um, but it's hard. And that's what I'm learning. I mean, it's very expensive to keep uh, a lab like that. And I, I believe that we, if we want to move to a high throughput condition, um, this is going to be expensive. And you have to take in consideration the experimental variability. Um, so we have been thinking hard on how to reduce this variability. The first thing would be to optimize the protocol. And we are taking um, uh, 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 different approaches to really um, uh, save uh, uh, money and time on, on the optimization of all the different stages of this protocol. But another thing that was um, almost impossible to replace is the postdoc who stays in the <laughs> tissue culture for uh, several hours every day, changing the media, making sure they are happy. 
So that's what I don't agree. I think, I mean, postdocs is such a valued um, asset to the lab, and I want to use their brains and not their hands. Hmm. Um, so we were thinking about uh, an automated way to grow brain organoids, and that was one of the original motivations to have this project um, uh, with Space Tango, uh, our partners uh, in the bioengineer side, so we could design uh, ways to grow brain organoids that are fully automated, kind of a plug and play. We have boxes now, and there are tubes. The organoids remains inside those tubes, and, um, and it's all uh, the feeding and the temperature control. There are cameras inside this box that can actually monitor everything. And um, we just had like the proof of concept that this can be done by sending them uh, to the space station. Um, so we know that um, it is possible. Now it's just a matter of uh, scalability. And uh, when I look into my lab and I see incubators, I see, I see people working on the hoods. You know, this is exactly the same situation that I had when I was just starting. And, um, and, and thinking back, this is probably a 100-year-old lab. It's the same setting. Mm. And I think science I mean, is, has advanced so much, and we still use an old lab to do it. It's still the same kind of incubators. Mm. I mean, yeah, they improve, but um, it, it's an incubator. And I want to change that in, in, in a more dramatic way. So the idea is to have a wall with all these boxes, and each box has an experiment with lots of organoids, and the postdocs can, can just monitor it through cameras and just see if they are okay, if the temperature is correct, if the pH is right, if the organoids are growing or not. So they don't actually have to feed the organoids or, or keeping the organoids there. This is going to be important, especially now that we know we need time to mature these networks to get to a level that is more similar to the human brain. And I'm talking about six, nine-month-old organoids. You know, I mean, when I propose um, some of those projects um, for my postdocs, they said, you know, if, if I start now, it's going to be like nine months for me to see the result. That's crazy. <laughs> but that's it. Yeah. Well, as a current postdoc, I thank you for your consideration, Dr. Motri. I really appreciate that. <laughs> so I think that's actually a perfect transition into the space portion of the interview. You had mentioned your work with Space Tango and how they're, they've been able to help implement your brain organoids into uh, uh, experiments aboard the Inter International Space Station. And you know this is something that's really exciting. And as somebody who has actually sent some IPS-derived cardiomyocytes to the International Space Station, I can't wait to talk to you about this. this is, I'm, I'm super excited about this. So why don't we talk about the experiment itself? So what were you hoping to accomplish by sending these brain organoids to the station? Yeah, let me step back and tell you uh, my motivation. I'm a big fan of science fiction, and I read all books of, and, and, and watch all movies about science fiction and humans living in space or uh, uh, colonizing other planets. And, and now it's kind of uh, a trend among these uh, billionaires. I mean, they all want to go to different planets and, and have colonies. And NASA has like a very well-defined goal um, to put the man on Mars and um, so all of that, it's, it's all great for humanity. I'm a big fan of this kind of work. Um, but nobody ever thought about what happens to the human brain uh, when it's born in space, right? And, uh, and we know from the NASA Twins uh, project uh, that the, the brother who stayed in the space station for about a year and came back, there are uh, several physiological alterations, not only the brain, but in other uh, tissues as well. 
some of these alterations go away and others uh, remain. And the brain is one that um, uh, it, it might make you uh, susceptible to a kind of um, uh, dementia, early dementia, or Alzheimer's, or, or things like that. Uh, so the more you expose yourself to space, the more problematic it, it will be. Uh, and this is an adult brain. What about the developing brain? The developing brain requires some um, gravity to actually form, to have the right axis, and, and, and for the progenitor cells to migrate. And the cortical plate also has uh, some kind of a structure that might be dependent on um, signals coming from the gravity. The human brain evolved on Earth, not in <laughs> space. So the, the question we had was, what happens to the uh, cortical development if uh, they are in microgravity? Will the progenitor cells migrate in the same way? And what our expectations, based on previous studies, is that most of the cells that are replicating, uh, when they are in the microgravity environment, they replicate faster. And uh, not only they replicate faster, if you stay long enough, you might have uh, an aging factor as well. Telomeres get uh, shortening. And um, when you are talking about brain development, we are capturing the stage where the progenitor cells are dividing like crazy. There's tons of neuroprogenitor cells dividing to produce neurons that would migrate to form the cortical plate. So even a tiny change in that uh, proliferation rate, it might generate, for example, a brain with a large volume. It is a tiny change that uh, makes us different from chimpanzees. It's just like a tiny thing. And uh, so if we have um, uh, uh, a little bit of more proliferation, the human brain might be born uh, bigger with a higher volume. A higher volume, it's correlated with uh, intellectual disability and autism. We see lots of kids with these uh, large brains. So more is not necessarily better. The other thing that uh, worries me, it is uh, if you have a big brain and if development is kind of fast, um, a woman will have a hard time to have a, a, a normal delivery. So it means that you might have to do a C-section in space, assuming that the brain would be okay. So first motivation was to see really how the human brain develops in space. I told you of uh, the bioengineer con content uh, on, on, on how to actually create these boxes that are fully automated. Uh, this was part of the motivation as well. And then there is the third motivation, which is, can we use that environment to create better disease models for application on Earth? And, and now I'm down to Earth. I'm not like thinking about space travel or anything like that. But uh, for example, what if I send um, brain organoids from Alzheimer's and let them age a little bit longer? Would I see phenotypes um, better than uh, here in my lab? It might be that um, brain organoids from Alzheimer's will require some kind of aging or senescence um, to show, to reveal phenotypes. Then we can screen drugs or, or finding ways to, um, to compensate those changes. Plague aggregation, it might happen more easily in space. So these are, I think, the kind of uh, situations that we'll be exploring in future missions. So it's not just uh, babies in space. I guess it's the idea is that some of these insights can actually lead to some uh, important therapeutic insights on Earth, like you alluded to with the Alzheimer's. You can use the microgravity to gain insight into disease here on Earth. 
You know, I have a question here for, for both you and Arun, because you have this common thread, having sent your uh, cells into space. You know, frankly, the whole thing's very bizarre to me in a lot of ways. <laughs> but I get really anxious about just the distance. You know, every scientist knows the anticipation of a long-weighted exciting results you know and and it's like while the experiment's going you just you just you're anxious you just you can't wait to look on it i like to look on it myself i go if it's a mouse it's a if it's a cell right. culture just whatever it is you know peek at it just make sure it still exists hasn't pulled like a schrodinger on me what's it like for you guys as you witness your precious question launched with impossible force into the death of space how does that feel? Are you like nervous? Are you excited? I mean, Dr. Mwatsi, Arun, tell me, what's it like? <laughs> it's terrifying, man. It's scary. <laughs> it's something that I spent four years in grad school trying to figure out, all leading to this one moment, this one rocket launch, right? And you have no idea what's going to happen, right? All of a sudden, boom, and everything <laughs> is gone, right? Everything you worked on for four years. But, you know, we were super lucky in terms of our experiment that it flew up on, you know, SpaceX CRS-9, I believe, back in 2016. Everything went off without a hitch. You know, we had the cells up there for about a month, and they were actually being grown by Dr. Kate Rubens, who is an astronaut who's not only an astronaut, but also a cell biologist. So we were super, super lucky in the whole process. But yeah, I mean, like you're saying, it's just like, everything's out of your control everything's out of your hands and it's it's super scary <laughs> yeah uh, I, and i feel the same i mean although we do have uh, cameras inside those boxes uh in the beginning um something happens that wasn't expected and we have a little bit of bubbles in there and the bubbles <laughs> obviously they were right in front of the camera so we <laughs> couldn't actually see it uh, for a while so it was only when the bubbles get together and, and, and move out of the camera that we could actually see and make sure that it was okay we do have other sensors that were suggesting that everything was fine nothing was broken uh, but it's still i mean seeing is believing and um and, and by the way we are receiving um our uh, payload uh, this afternoon here in San Diego. So I'm, awesome. I, I'm super anxious just to open and actually see it, uh, what, what they look like. <laughs> I'm excited for you. <laughs> wow. So kind of on that note, you know, you had mentioned uh, Space Tango, which is uh, an implementation partner. So they've actually helped design some of the microgravity cell culture apparatuses that were actually used to grow these organoids and send them to the station. Is that right? Could you talk a little bit about working with them and, you know, what they were able to do to kind of make your job as, as a biologist a little bit easier? Yeah, so these guys are amazing. I was uh, fortunate to, to get to know them. And uh, they are all very young and enthusiastic, but definitely they're, they're engineers and uh, not biologists. So it was a, was a nice combination to actually um, make sure that we are talking to each other. They came, they visit the lab, they learn how the process goes. We, we, we test some uh, different parts, different components of uh, uh, the box, making sure that uh, both parts were happy, uh, make sure they don't have unrealistic perspectives of what the experiments will do, and, and, and same for us. Um, so I, 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 I like it, and I, I think uh, the learning process is, is very important, and probably you, you pass through the same. When you start doing these experiments, it's different than uh, on Earth, on, in my lab, if you fail, you re just start again. Those things has a logistic, and you have to um, to be very precise on this logistic. At the same time, um, and that's why they call Tango, there's a little bit of improvisation along the way <laughs> because, I mean, um, uh, the lab is in space, 
and uh, you cannot just, uh, oh, I forget uh, to add like PBS in my reagents. Oh, here the PBS bottle. That never happens. So there's a, a preparation time. And if there are problems that happens, like the bubbles we had, we have to figure out, I mean, how to uh, uh, remove the bubbles or mitigate uh, the problems. And that's, uh, uh, that's the part that I also enjoy. I mean, how would you solve a problem uh, on the go, right? And, um, and this is challenge um, uh, for a scientist uh, who are used to have everything in a very comfortable lab and, uh, and just perform the experiments knowing that you can make a mistake and repeat the next day. Um, so it was, um, was a very interesting experiment, um, perhaps the most expensive experiment in my lab that I've ever done. Uh, but I think it will pay off. We are, we are expecting to learn uh, lots of things. And this is the first mission. We have other missions uh, planning as well. Um, our ultimate goal is really to create a stem cell lab in space. So that's where we are going. Uh, we uh, want um, to develop this further, not only for the brain, but uh, for other applications as well. And um, so I'm trying to convince here my team at UCSD to really uh, take this uh, to the next level and, um, and create a stem cell lab in space so we can, <laughs> we can help astronauts, but we can also help people on Earth. Yeah, I have to laugh because I can remember about 20 years ago, everyone was freaking out about doing stem cells. And everyone was trying to find a safe haven lab, a protected lab that wasn't NIH funded. If I told myself 20 years ago that don't worry, we'll have a stem cell lab in space where you can do whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly wouldn't believe myself, but we're on our way. And now, you know, as you said, you got your payload coming uh, back to Earth. And here on Earth... You've got a pretty exciting day. I mean, as we speak, there's this media frenzy about your most recent article in uh, Cell Stem Cell describing complex brain waves emerging from human pluripotent stem cell-derived organoids, and those resemble those that you see in fetal uh, electroencephalogram, which is amazing. Wow. Uh, so I haven't really had a look because it's just in press, but would you mind giving us a, a brief summary of the work and the implications? Yeah, so we have um, uh, been working on this new protocol to make bra cortical brain organoids um, that actually has the right environment so neurons can um, start forming connections, forming synapses, and, um, and, and establish networks. And, and to be honest, when we started, I, I thought that, well, we'll just gain like some activity because it's 3D, as we mentioned, we might have more connections because neurons are uh, now connecting with uh, more neurons, and, and, and that's all the gain that we're going to have. So uh, the way we measured the activity was uh, using multi-electrode multi arrays, where we plate the organoids on top of uh, plates where the electrodes are printed in the bottom. And we just record all the time when there is an activity in one of the electrodes, we'll see a spike. Uh, you can uh, not tell if it's coming from a single neuron or a cluster of neurons, but nonetheless, it's just like an overall activity. And we were doing that weekly. And um, so for the first uh, two months, we will have like some random sporadic activity um, that was increasing over time, similar to what we had before. When we reach about uh, four to six months, something happened. Uh, the uh, number of spikes that we were seeing on this array and the synchrony of spikes were getting too high uh, and exponentially high. And I thought um, that there was something wrong. I, I, I remember discussing with members of my lab. I said, oh, I'm really skeptical because nobody ever reported something like that. 
and it's probably like a, a malfunctioning electrode or something. Let's check it out. Well, check it out. There is no artifact. This was a real signal. Uh, and then we continue to record. And that was even a big surprise. After six, eight, nine months, we reach a level that we are moving from 300 uh, spikes to 300,000 spikes mm. in nine months. And I said, oh, my gosh, this is, I mean, it's unprecedented. I, I've never seen this before. And we searched the literature to see if there was anything similar. And it turns out that, that no. So if you have that much activity, you are able to record um, uh, brain waves in a different frequencies. And these would be uh, what uh, the cognitive neuroscience people would call alpha, gamma, delta waves that you can extract from the same data. And um, so we team up with Brad Wojtek here at UCSD, and, and, and he helped us on the detection of these brain waves. And, and being very skeptical, uh, as, as we were in the beginning, we thought that we'll never see anything like that. But, uh, but they were there. And not only they were there, there was a, a, a moment where they get highly synchronized, which is a sign of uh, immaturity. Uh, but after that, they become highly complex. And uh, this uh, the high level of complexity is exactly what you expect uh, for the human cortex or, or for any complex system. Um, so that was a, a, a very nice uh, uh, observation. And obviously, the next question is, OK, I mean, if we have now these uh, oscillatory brain waves, um, uh, it means that the neurons are way more mature than what we have in the past. But, but how much? Or, or are they making the connections in the similar way as the human embryo fetal does? And that's a challenge because the human embryo is a black box. You cannot stick electrodes in a healthy human embryo just for the sake of science. That would be unethical. So there is no data out there uh, pointing to how the um, uh, brain activity changes in these very early stages. So we have to rely on preterm babies. So these are babies that are born uh, prematurely. And uh, sometimes doctors place uh, the electrodes on their skulls uh, and just to monitor activity, making sure that the brain is OK, they're not having a seizure. Um, and, and this data is out there. So someone already recorded from, from hundreds of them. Um, so we, we were able to access this data set. And, uh, and what we decided to do was to create a machine learning algorithm. So this is a machine that will take the EEG features, and uh, based on those features, will guess the age of the person. Hmm. And we keep training the machine with different ages. And uh, the machine gets so good at that, actually better than uh, my uh, MD's friends who cannot distinguish between <laughs> 25, 26 weeks. The machine can do it precisely. It tells, it just gets like um, a couple of EEG features and tells the age of the subject. So once we have the machine fully trained, we start feeding the machine with the data coming from the organoids. And we are using the same features as the EEG that are comparable. There are things that we cannot compare. The EEGs are all over the place, so we are focusing on the cortex. We have a skull. We don't have a skull in the organoid, so we are removing the features that we, we cannot compare. So we are only comparing what's comparable. And when you do that, that's the interesting part. After 25 weeks, the machines get really confused. Uh, it gets confused because it can no longer distinguish the data coming from the normal human brain mm -hmm. or the brain organoid data. And this is true not only at 25 weeks, but as they grow older, that correlation or the confusion of the machine gets um, uh, uh, better and better. So it, it suggests that the organoids are evolving or developing 
in the same way as the uh, human brain does, which is amazing to think about it. So before 25 weeks, um, we have no data to train the machine. So we don't know what happens before 25 weeks. But after that, we are pretty confident that the features that we are seeing the organoids are developing in the same trajectory as the human brain does. Wow. So, Dr. Mulcher, you mentioned that you're a sci-fi fan, and I'm a big sci-fi fan, too. And this sounds like science fiction to me. This is incredible, right? So you have these extremely developmentally advanced brain organoids. And it kind of makes me wonder, is, is there a point where you might say they're too developed? Is There's a whole bioethical conundrum here, right? There's a lot of bioethical things to consider. Um, so along those lines, were there people that you consulted when you were pursuing this project outside of your standard IRB committees, for example, to, to help you make those decisions of, you know, how long should I be growing these things? Right, right. Yeah, that's a great question. And um, it's so funny because in the early days of uh, these uh, brain organoids, uh, I remember seeing some of those um, uh, concerns and I was not concerned because if you asked me five years ago, would these uh, brain organoids ever had uh, this kind of complex uh, network activity similar to the human brain? And uh, my intuition as a neuroscientist is to say no. I think that uh, the brain would require all brain regions to be connected. I think we we'll need an uh, an in uterus environment so uh, the the fetus could receive signal from other tissues and from the mom and from the environment. And I, I would think that uh, the brain would require everything like that, more neurons. Um, and the organoids are just a few neurons. And, and, and it's interesting to think now that I'm wrong. And it means that the human brain is genetically pre-programmed to form these networks by its own. We are not guiding them. There is no signal coming from the environment to help them mature. These are all intrinsic signals. And the fact that they do that outside the body is something that um, it, it makes me think. It might be that what we are detecting now is the beginning of a complicated network that might lead to a future behavior or, or consciousness or self-aware later on, especially if we can keep maturing them more or, or, or if we start plugging them with sensory neurons, for example. Um, would they be able to start forming memories to feel pain, things like that? So um, as we get closer to the human brain, uh, the, these ethical questions will start to appear and, and we are entering a gray zone now. And I think that's the time where we need to start talking uh, to people, talking to ethicists. I definitely consulted with uh, uh, my colleagues ethicists here. And, and, and by the way, uh, on October 4th, I'm organizing a meeting here at UCSD to discuss uh, the moral status of brain organoids. Um, so I'm inviting lots of philosophers. Uh, we're going to discuss um, what is uh, uh, a potential sign of consciousness in organoids and how to design an experiment to prove or disprove that. And, and then we invite ethicists as well uh, to discuss uh, what if they are, <laughs> what should we do, right? Mm. And I think what we are moving towards is uh, some kind of regulation. So we work with animal models, and, and animals do have conscious. We are fully aware that they do have conscious, but uh, we are still use them um, in, 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 in research, in biomedical research. Uh, we just have to do that in a way that is, uh, uh, follows the university regulations, right? And I think with brain organoids might be, uh, depending on the stage, I don't think any brain organoid will get into this category. 
but definitely the ones that uh, suggest some kind of uh, uh, sophisticated activity, we might need some kind of regulation. I see this technology as any other powerful technology, and initially it's all about uh, the public perception, how the public sees it. And that's why I don't like this term mini brains, because the public think that we have really a mini brain inside the lab. I think we should stick to brain organoids and explain what it is um, precisely to the society so they can see the differences between the two things. And um, there are other technologies in the past, such as blood transfusion, uh, organ transplant, uh, now driverless cars, right? I mean, we are debating um, how good or bad these technologies are. And once the public perceive as a good technology, so it's doing something good for society, then it becomes, uh, we all adopt it and we all use it and we don't question anymore. So I think the brain organized will be the same thing. As soon as we start translating what we know from uh, the in vitro system to humans, as soon as we start helping people with all these neurological conditions, I think people will see, oh, okay, now, now I get it. They are helping people. And then probably most of these ethical concerns will go away. My gosh, I must say, I've never had an interview, and I've done about 100 of these, that was so broad in the scope. I mean, we started talking about stem cells, and then before long, we're talking about Zika. Then we went into space, and now we're talking about not just the brain, but the mind in a dish. Holy camoli. We got to stop there, my man. Although, before we stop, we want to go into a couple peripherally science-related questions, if that's all right. Uh, first I'll go and then Arun can follow. What was your greatest or most memorable science re revelation or, you know, uh, the big greatest disappointment, your choice or both? Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, the, uh, the fact, um, and I, I, I believe that I, I owe my career to, to two Japaneses. Uh, one is Shine Yamanaka and the other one is, uh, Sasai. Uh, because they, they both kind of uh, uh, provide me with all the tools that I need to, to build my lab. Um, so, I, and, and, and I think the fact that uh, there are two moments that I see that was a kind of aha, uh, interesting moment. Uh, one is when we saw that uh, you alluded to the cell paper on rat syndrome, that we can actually make neurons that are different. But not only that, that we could treat those neurons with some, some drugs and revert the phenotype. I think that was uh, great, and I remember um, seeing many comments uh, coming on my way through email, social media, saying this is a great experiment. First, you proved the biological uh, nature of the disease. I mean, we knew that the gene was there. There was mouse models. I'm not claiming anything like that. But as seen in, in human neurons, it kind of brings you this feeling that, aha, now I, I see what's going on wrong. And the fact that it's not permanent, that you can change it, that you can revert the phenotype. Uh, so being able to revert something, especially on the brain, I think it's amazing. And I think to me that was uh, the, the first indication for that. And, uh, and I think like the most recent research on brain organoids, building up on what Sasai has done in the past, I think it's fabulous to see that we can get to that level of sophistication, uh, starting from single iPSCs. That's, um, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. And following up on that, Dr. Moatri, and I think I might know the answer to this one, but in your opinion, the biggest thing in the stem cell field right now is what? <laughs> I, I want to know what you would you say. <laughs> but to me, the biggest thing in, in, in stem cell is translatability. I think oh, we okay. have been working <laughs> with stems. Yeah, 
because we, we have been working, performing experiments, uh, knowing everything, but I want to translate that. And uh, I'm getting more and more in touch with families who suffer from neurological conditions. And this is a tough life. I mean, it's a miracle to have a, a, a normal developing kid. So this is uh, when, once you have someone with a problem in your family, it's a, it's a big hit. And, um, and they put so much hope on us. And, and I think it's time to deliver. I think it's time for us to lose uh, a little bit of uh, the, our academic perspective and start thinking more and more on how to translate those things. Um, we will make mistakes, and we should be aware that we will make mistakes, but we will make calculated mistakes. It's the same thing as going to space. Um, you can mitigate the risk by teaming up with good people, by having like uh, uh, regulations uh, around it, uh, but definitely moving forward. Um, and, and thinking more and more on how to help people. So that's kind of my mission now. Well, I thought you were going to say organoids, but hey, translatability, <laughs> that's that's important too, for sure. It's broader, broader than the brain. I think we all, you know, all systems should be thinking about that. For sure. Well, yeah, if there's anybody who's going to translate it, I feel like you've got enough uh, buns in the oven that, that something's <laughs> going to come out tasting right. Dr. Moatri, this has really been, like I said, a broad conversation, but so exciting what you're doing. And, and thanks so much on a busy day when you got things coming down to earth and you got reporters knocking down your door. Thanks for taking a moment to talk to us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was great talk. That brings us to the end of this episode of The Stem Cell Podcast. Arun, I am so impressed with this interview and this conversation that we had Particularly is one thing, you know, I, I think back about early days for me and the target, the point of reference for anything stem cell derived was you would say, okay, we made these cells out of stem cells and then we went into aborted fetal tissue and we found a correlate. And that's, you know, you had to go that far back because we're talking about nine months gestation. But here we are where Dr. Moatri and his group, they're comparing organoids and the activity and function of these organoids to babies that are born preterm fine but they're alive and they're gonna live so we're pushing the needle forward further and further and i i can't say enough i say again i i've lost my capacity for surprise after talking to these people it's amazing we're growing organoids in space that's crazy <laughs> oh yeah that too <laughs> Well, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And uh, we're lucky to have talked to him on a big day where he's getting a payload from space and he's getting you know a lot of attention on this media. But he's a great guy and uh, a great conversation. I don't know. This is just, it gets better every episode. Guys, don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes for this one. That includes an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. We'll see you next week with that mini episode and in two weeks with our next big interview. It's going to be tough to beat this one. Arun, thanks for your time. Dr. Moatri, this was great. Listeners, We'll be back before you know it.